This is M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's the most wonderful time of the week. Founder of the largest online progressive community. Founder Civics with a Q, Marcos Melitsis joins us once again. Also, the host of the podcast, The Brief. We're just getting back in our routine. He and I have been away for a little while. First of all, welcome back, Marcos. How are you? How's the brief going? The brief is doing um, doing great, actually. Um, the last month, I basically have been focused on Ukraine, and uh, it's been a good response to those episodes. So pretty excited. You have distinguished yourself as a Ukraine expert. Uh, we need you at the Pentagon briefings. <laughs> um, you, seem, you, you seem more enlightened than anybody else. I, I consider myself an expert on military logistics. It doesn't matter if they're in Ukraine or Iraq or <laughs> wherever. Logistics are logistics. And it really, once you have that frame of reference that combat is all about supporting the small percentage of troops that actually shoot anything, only about 15% of, of a army soldiers actually shoot anything. 85% of them are logistical, right. medical, mechanical, fuel, um, and so on, like in support of the, of, the, of the 15% who shoot stuff. Once you realize that, it actually explains why armies move in certain ways, why they're attacking in certain locations, uh, why defenders set up in certain places. I mean, it, it sort of all suddenly makes sense. And I think a lot of people think that tactics are all about just, you know, moving pieces and there's an army. And we're going to move somebody to the left and we're going to move somebody to the right. And it really isn't like that. You're always looking at terrain. You're looking at, at rail lines. You're looking at roads. You're looking at how you can supply an army, how you can prevent your opponent from being resupplied. That becomes the name of the game. And so it allows for a, a to me, it's a more sensical view of what's happening on the ground. Uh, and it's something that the traditional media just, they don't understand because they don't, they don't have that experience. Right. So I like to I like to give credit where it's due. I think the traditional media is doing a great job of telling a human story of refugees and and how Russia is destroying towns and and um, murdering people. That part of the story, I think they're doing a fantastic job of telling. The military part of it, they're not not even close to telling that well. And and so I think Daily Coast is really. Um, open up a niche, you know, where we can tell that story in a way that I think educates our readers more than the vast majority of people even paying attention to the war. Uh, I think our readers understand that even better than most people. Why do you think the media is falling down on telling the military logistical story? I, I just think it comes from, you know, from a lack of experience. I mean, very few people have military experience nowadays. And the ones that do are, are, they, they generally are the lower socioeconomic strata of this country, right? So if you go look at veterans, they're going to be mechanics, they're going to be cops and firemen, they're going to be working government jobs, right? They're not the people who, you know, <laughs> got through journalism degrees in college and, are, and start working their way up the media chain. 
So that crowd doesn't understand how an army works. It's just not part of their experience. And so a lot of it depends on generals and generals also, generals are generals. Of course, they're going to understand how to move an army. They haven't been on the ground, right? It's a difference between asking Jeff Bezos what's going on in Amazon and asking a worker at one of the warehouses what's happening at Amazon. They're going to tell you two completely different stories. Right, right, right. The story of the warehouse worker is a real story. And it's relevant. And if, and if say, because, uh, you know, Amazon's having trouble delivering stuff, right? You ask the two of them different, you know, the same question. Those are only different stories. Jeff Bezos might look at the macro picture and talk about China. And the guy in the warehouse may tell you about how, you know, the, the supply, you know, the trucks are just backed up and they're not being able to get in. And there's no truck bays to get them in. And except, right, there's a different uh, frame of reference. And very few people in media have the frame of reference that I have, which is actually being in charge yeah, of yeah. supplying a missile artillery battery, uh, both with firing information, which was about 5% of my job, and the bigger part of my job, which was making sure they had fuel, that they had uh, ammunition, that they had food, that the mechanics were able to you know, maintain, help maintain stuff. Uh, medics, if anything needed to be done medically. I mean, it, there, there's a whole world of, uh, of, of tasks that have to be done for that 5% of the time that I was actually telling a missile battery to press a button to fire something. Yeah. And even yeah. I was a support position, right? Because I'm not actually pressing the button firing rockets, right? I was, right. I was fire direction. I was command and control. So there's yeah. this whole support structure. And yeah, and, and so the media, I don't think it's a, I don't, I, I don't want to say it's a bad thing. They just don't know how to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. And they're not going to reach out to grunts to tell that story because, you know, <laughs> oh, he was just a specialist in the army. We have access to generals. But the generals will tell you the, the, the bigger picture thing. And then I got to say, the generals in, in general, their view of the war has been kind of crappy. Really, I mean, it, it to the point where it's it sort of when you see, Mark, you've seen this, right? You see political consultants go on TV and they, they say the conventional wisdom. And they think they sound smart because they're saying what's safe to say. Because everybody else is saying it. So, yeah, he was about to fall every day for three weeks. And you'd had generals on CNN saying, yeah, well, you know, Russia will get their stuff. They'll, they'll get their shit together, right? Yeah, they're having some logistical issues, but they'll work it out. And Russia's only 20, you know, 10 miles from Kiev. Only 10 miles. For three weeks, Russia was on the verge. I'm looking at what's going on in northwestern Ukraine, and I see a bogged down, stuck army. I see the Ukrainians flooding the region. They literally opened up the dams. They flooded the region so tanks couldn't get through, and they were stuck in the mud. I could see them trying to push out west and loop around and not being able to do so. And so it, it was really clearly obvious that you, that Russia wasn't getting, wasn't, wasn't, they were just stuck. And I, I could see why they were stuck. And I've, I've written about this extensively. I think we maybe even talked about it. 15% of an army shoots something. I just said that, right? And I think that's a really critical distinction. And I, I don't think I've heard that said on CNN yet. They'll talk about no. the logistics, the logistics, the logistics. That's part of the 190,000 Russians 
in Ukraine are the logistics. So if you take 190,000, 15% of them are, are combat forces. Let's be extra generous. Let's say it's 30% that somehow Russia managed to, to change the rules of the game and they have more people committed to combat roles. Uh, that would be 30% of 190,000 is what, 19, 38, it's about 50,000 troops, 50,000 soldiers in a country the size of, of Texas attacking from four different directions. So you're talking about 10,000 per direction. They split those up into, last I counted, about 14 lines of attack. It's shrinking now because Ukraine has smashed a couple of those advances, like literally smashed some of those advances. But got about a dozen lines of advance. So 10,000 divided by 12. You got 800 combat troops per advance camping out outside of cities that had 250,000 people in them. Like what in what world does that math work? It just does not work. If the U.S. were to invade Mexico, it would concentrate its forces, probably at Ciudad Juarez, right? You, you, you take a major city and you use that as a base to expand out. Russia just kind of willy-nilly went all over the place. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so strategically, tactically, logistically, I mean, it's a failure in every step of the way. And so I don't know why some of these generals don't see that, don't make that distinction, or just can't communicate it effectively. The reporters themselves really don't, don't know different. They don't know any better. So they have to depend on the experts, the Pentagon, to tell them what's going on. And then, of course, the Pentagon's going to sanitize stuff in a way that they're not going <laughs> to they're not going to dig because that's just not their job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More MIP after this message. Geico asks, "How would you love a chance to save money on your insurance?" Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use GEICO mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to GEICO becomes an easy choice. Switch to Today and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This is all very interesting. So what's your take on the latest we're hearing? There's some some peace talks. There's been, I guess, a scaling down of hostility momentarily. Is is that real or no? It's not. It's not. No, it's not real. Um, there's two two questions here. Russia said that in light of peace talks, they were gonna they were gonna de-emphasize the assaults around Kiev. Um, in the last forty eight hours, the assault on Kiev has intensified artillery and rocket. And Chernihiv, which is a town northeast of, of Kiev. The conventional wisdom is that Russia wants to pull those troops out to send them to the Eastern Front, which is the only place where they're having any kind of luck. The reason is that the Eastern Front is desert like. 
the the terrain is flat there are no trees or scrubby you know scrubby you know uh scraggly trees uh very few rivers so russia has been able to make take make more gains because you don't have these natural defensive positions kiev is full of rivers it's full of forest it's been i mean they they've suffered horrific losses around kiev and uh, so a lot of the talk is okay you know russia wanted to take kiev they wanted to decapitate the ukrainian government that's not going to happen so they're, now they're going to try to shift it to the one front where they are having some success now what that means though though if that if russia pulls those troops out then ukraine can send the regular army units that are defending kiev also out to the east right so it's <laughs> not sure it, it helps anybody so they have to keep a certain number of troops in the area to pin down those Ukrainian forces. And right now they're they're They've just responded. The artillery um, and rocket attacks are, you know, they're extra right now. It's, it's, it's pretty fierce. The fighting that's going on in that region. So by no means has it been reduced. I actually wrote a story this morning about the four different options that that may emerge right one of them is just a status quo nothing changes russia russia said they weren't going to attack the day before they said they attacked right so you can't believe a word that russia says number two is that they pull back from kiev to more defensible positions just to pin down to stay in the region pin down some ukrainian units but they're not gonna they're not gonna be so close to kiev that they're they're under direct threat of ukrainian artillery that's an option. Uh, another option is just they, they pull out of northwestern Kiev and they loop around to the other side of the there's a there's a there's a reservoir north of Kiev that divides on the left side. On the western side, you have Chern, uh, Chernobyl. Remember Chernobyl, the, the nuclear power plant. That area is pretty depopulated, to put it mildly. And so maybe they just pull out of that entire region and then they, they focus on the other side of that of that reservoir where you have a city called Chernihiv. And there you can pin down some some Ukrainian troops, because what they've done in Chernihiv is they've surrounded it like they did the Mariupol and they're, they're bombing it to to rubble. And there's quarter million people trapped in the city without food, without medicine. It's, it's the story of Russian brutality. So if you keep if Russia moves some of those troops there that forces Ukraine, they're going to they're gonna have to try to bust the siege. So that traps those Ukrainian army units. So that would be, that would meet their, um, their uh, goals. And then the last option is they just can't move because of logistics, you know, always going back to logistics, moving troops, cost fuel, cost, um, cost um, resources, ammunition, because you got to cover the retreat. Can't even do it. Who knows? You know, we can't assume Russia can do anything these days because it, they've proven to be pretty inept. So to answer, that was a really long answer <laughs> to a simple question, which basically says, no, the fighting hasn't stopped. And who knows? More MIP after this message. As far as the peace talks, nothing, non-starter. Ukraine is, is, is insisting that they can make security arrangements with countries. Doesn't have to be NATO. But they want security guarantees, and Russia says no. So as long as that's, um, and honestly, Mark, right now, I don't think either side is interested in stopping. Because, really? yeah, I mean, if you're Ukraine, Ukraine's actually gained a great amount of territory in recent days. Uh, they're on the offensive on three of the fronts, and uh, have been pushing Russia back. And in fact, around one of those cities, Sumy, which is right on the Russian border, 
another one of these embarrassments for Russia that they can't take these cities on their border. They took Russia's most famous uh, tank division with the most modern tanks, the only division in the Russian army that had T-80 tanks, which is the most modern, best tanks in, in, in the Russian inventory. And uh, they smashed it. They absolutely smashed it over the weekend. They, they destroyed it. Last count, over 100 tanks of 220. They literally pushed them back across the border in Russia. They ejected them from Ukrainian territory. So these major victories are happening in three of the four fronts. There's the fourth front, which is the eastern Donbas front. That is where Russia is making incremental gains. And that's why everybody thinks, well, they're going to move those troops from Kiev over to Donbas to try to push their advantage on that side of, of the war. Everywhere else, Russia's, uh, Ukraine's making gains. So I don't see why Ukraine really, their motivation right now is, uh, obviously they want to minimize civilian deaths, but they're at a place right now where Russia's really not, in, they, Russia still doesn't realize that they've lost the war. And so they're not willing to make any compromises. And I don't think Putin can. I think if Putin makes some of these compromises, he's done. He, and maybe he realizes it's that. So he's just throwing more cannon fodder, more Russian soldiers to die in Ukraine. And, uh, and then I said, Ukraine's making gains. Well, you, don't, you don't sue for peace when you're actually on the offensive, which, which is what Ukraine is right now. So as you've explained to us um, very well, 15% of any army is the shooting force. And you got to have your logistics together. Are you saying this? Last week you talked to us about how shabby Russia's logistics, Russia's army. Uh, you even talked about how there there aren't really even a lot of Russians out there on the front line. Generals are being killed. Are yep. you saying that that um, Ukraine though has its fifteen percent and its logistics together? It's easier to have your logistics when you're playing defense. And when you're on your home turf. And, and when you're on your home turf. And too. you're on home turf, right? Right, 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 right. Like if you walk into a town, a liberated town, the civilians will feed you. Yeah. They're not yeah, going to feed yeah, the Russians. Yeah. Russians right. either they need to steal that food or it needs to come in a right. truck. And that truck ain't coming. So yeah. they had to steal that food, which of course increases hostility with the locals and and uh creates its own set of problems. So you are when you're moving, you have to have fuel trucks behind you because you're running out of gas. When your tank is parked in a defensive position, it's not using any gas. It's a lot easier. Now, the challenge here, though, which is actually not a, is a good point, Mark, is that now that Ukraine's on the offensive, now you, now you start worrying about can uh, Ukraine sustain those operations? And if you're paying attention, you may have noticed that the last several nights, Russia has been hitting fuel depots all around Ukraine. And you wonder, why didn't they do that before? Because an army in the defensive doesn't need fuel, so who cares? An army that's now turning around and starting to move forward needs fuel, and so Russia is trying to, trying to degrade Ukraine's ability to fuel its forces. So those will become issues. Can't, do they have good supply lines? It helps that the entire army is your supply system, right? Every civilian with a pickup truck can load up that pickup truck with sacks of potatoes and send them to the you know send them to the front to soldiers in the front, which is actually a thing that is happening. You see these civilians in their in their pickup trucks moving 
medical supplies, weapons, whatever. Russia doesn't have that advantage. So again, 190,000, if we're going to say, if we're going to be generous and say 50,000 of those are combat troops, and that's 140,000 Russians in support and logistics support, you know, roles. Now you have 40 million Ukrainians in that supply logistics role. So Ukraine's army can actually fight while the civilians help maintain those uh, supply lines. And, and you, we're not even counting at the moment the Ukrainians who are doing a little bit more than civilian work and supply line work. They're actually engaging themselves, you know, I guess throwing a Molotov cocktails or something. I mean, are, are, they, are they a factor as, as well? The, I mean, the Molotov cocktail hasn't become an issue because that was all designed to defend urban defense. And okay. Russia never got into, <laughs> not ever, you know, okay. hasn't actually entered any cities except Kherson in the South early, early in the war. What they have is they have 200,000 regular army. They have another 70 to 80,000 territorial defense forces. These are the civilians that joined up at the last minute and were basically given AK-47s and maybe a, an anti-tank launcher. And they're the ones that are designed to defend their territory. They're like National Guard. There is a massive waiting list. The only thing that's stopping more Ukrainians from joining the territorial defense forces is a lack of equipment. Then you have 200,000 reservists that were called up right before the, like literally the week the, the war started, they were called up. 200,000 of them, we don't know what's going on with them. By Everybody suspects that they're out in the, in the West, they're training, they have time to train. There's no real hurry right now. And so as long as the West is supplying them with weapons and training, that hopefully at some point here within the next month, we might start seeing some of these reservists actually deploy or at least give a break to the frontline uh, units that have been doing all the fighting uh, for now. And uh, hopefully they're, they're, they're training an entire new reserve army out in the West that they can deploy to, to, to strike at some point here in the future. But we don't, we don't know where they, where they are. So, and then there's just basic civilians that are running around with their hunting rifles and they, uh, um, we see them a lot. The, the tractors that are pulling the, <laughs> you know, like captured or abandoned Russian equipment. And when you see abandoned Russian equipment, and there's a lot of TikToks and tweets and Instagrams about them. The abandoned equipment is because they ran out of gas. It's anytime you see abandoned, they ran out of gas because Russia cannot supply them. So the fourth tank guard division, I just mentioned them, the most famous. It was the division that that defended uh, Stalingrad against the Nazis and pushed them out. Utterly decimated. At last count, they've lost a hundred, like ninety-eight tanks of two hundred and twenty, and this is visually verified. So there's every day we're still seeing pictures come up. Oh, they, a lot of them just ran out of freaking gas, and so they're sitting there, and a lot of them become U.S. Uh, Ukrainian army property, right? Because Ukraine has gas. <laughs> it's just turned around, right? These are the best tanks Russia has. Now here's the thing. If you go down the list, uh, there's a site that tracks all these verified, both sides, Ukrainian and, and Russian army losses. Of the 92 tanks that this division has lost, 
only about eight were lost in combat. So less than 10% of the verified, again, we don't have the complete picture. Only 8%, you know, eight of the 92 were lost in combat. The rest were abandoned or captured where they just surrendered. Wow. So, Marcos, then let me ask this. Is, I'll just put it this way, Sam, simply. Is Russia losing this war? Yes. Okay. It was losing yeah. this war from day three. That's that's how disastrous every step of this has been, where it was obvious within three days that this wasn't the Russia everybody expected. Russia supposedly has 3,500 aircraft in its air force. Right now, they're running maybe a dozen air sorties a day over Ukraine. A dozen, 12 air sorties, their aircraft. Where is this air force? This is the air force that has cost this country trillions of dollars. We must keep pace with Russia's air force. There's no air force. There's no air force. No, no. But wait a minute. You said they have 30. So wait a minute. Is it true they have 3,500 planes? Nobody knows. Yeah, it's they're probably the, the aircraft probably exist, but they clearly can't fly. Why? Because yeah, prob- the, the, the fuel's been sold for vodka. The parts were sold. for. So the, the fourth tanks, I keep coming to the fourth tank guard <laughs> division, right? Because this story. So it turns out one of the commanders of the division uh, committed death by suicide. Right. Okay. So what happened? Oh, like, turns out that they had a strategic supply of tanks. They opened up the strategic supply of tanks, and supposedly Russia has 20,000 tanks in storage, right? Nine out of 10 were inoperable. Most of them had their engines stripped, parts were sold off, the optics were sold off. And here's the, here's the kicker you know why? They privatized maintenance. I mean, Russia is the Republican dream. It's a Republican nirvana, right? Where it's free, no freedom of the press, where you have autocratic rule, no accountability, oligarchs run the joint. They privatized maintenance of their strategic reserve, and the oligarchs pocketed the money so they could buy their Italian villas and London townhouses. And the people on the ground stripped those tanks for parts and the fuel and the maintenance lube and all that stuff. They, they sell that off so they can buy vodka and whatever else they need to buy. And uh, only one in 10 tanks worked. Jesus. Jesus. Now, are those tanks going to the front? I, I, I don't know. I mean, we even haven't even seen that. So maybe even that one out of 10 doesn't work. So once this, once this commander found that out, you know, committed death by suicide because <laughs> it was on, it was on him apparently. But it's not really on him. It's on this whole system that's designed to benefit the rich. And everybody just grifts and grifts and grifts. It you know, is... I just had a... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You had a thought. No, I, it just I, I just had a visual for the first time. And I may be late having this visual. Um, others of you have probably had it. But as I look at this country and its oligarchical system and, you know, what people actually spend money on instead of what they should be spending money on. I mean, it's like the, the, the country and its oligarchy is like a, a macro um, 
Playboy Mansion. You know, mm-hmm. I just had that visual, and 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 it, it, it probably even from what you're saying, even prosecuting a war that they started. I mean that that's not even a serious thing. It's like okay, we're gonna do this, but you know, really, we're just boys trying to have fun and be rich and and get out, you know, get vodka and prostitutes and yeah. And, and for yachts sure. and villas. Okay, yeah. And we're never going to need the money for something serious so we can afford to be frivolous. Yeah. And yeah, live this yeah. life of excess. So, Nobody but, but thought that, Putin would actually launch a real war. But then, then it begs the question, you know, there's no honor amongst thieves. We know that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, at what point are there oligarchs saying, hey, dude, we, we having a good time you messing all of this up trying to do something with resources that we've already spent. I mean, is that, and so does he have to kind of hold on and save face or something? I mean, I'm not known somebody to lose a war or prosecute a war so poorly and then go home a hero. So historically the Soviet union had a Politburo who made decisions, right? So yeah, you had the, you had the Supreme um, party head, but there was still a level of accountability. Yeah, that's true. Putin has been very effective about stripping that out. There's nobody. Yeah, it's Putin. Yeah, and then there's that table, and about fifty feet down the table, there's a couple of people because <laughs> Putin wouldn't let anybody near him, and so he systematically has eliminated any sense of accountability uh, anywhere within that government. So there is, um, you know, people who know criminolo- Kremlinology, which is its own. <laughs> archaic field of study very difficult um so that maybe 10 years ago the oligarchs would have had the jews to to do something about it but nowadays putin is is he is insulated enough um he he's he's created layers of defense against the oligarchs he knew he recognized that danger and again i'm not i don't know what the details are specifically but i think a table where you know the nearest person is 30 feet away is probably part of that, uh, those defenses. I don't think anybody gets near him right now. Yeah, this is, uh, this is an amazing story, folks. So lastly, how long, how long can this go on? I mean, if, if they run out of gas, they're losing stuff. You got me, you, you got me curious about these planes. Now I'm probably gonna lose sleep wondering about that. Uh, Cause you're right. We spend taxpayer dollars to keep up with their planes and we're all the planes. I mean, there is people are like, I wonder if their nukes even work. We're not about to find out. We're not about to find out. But who the heck knows at this point? Yeah. Not just yeah. do they work, but have they sold some of this material to terrorist groups? Since everything apparently in Russia is for sale, everything. So yeah. how long can it yeah. go? It can go on. It, it's going to go on indefinitely. I mean, um, the sanctions will take a while to bite. Right now, Putin's approval ratings like at eighty percent in Russia, so it's a power of propaganda, and I mean, they got one source of information, and right. the people who oppose it are leaving in droves. I mean, millions of Russians are leaving Russia, the middle class, the tech class. Um, there's not, I mean, there's a real brain drain happening in Russia that's going to really dramatically affect the country for decades, on top of everything else, and uh, so. Can they park a bunch of tanks? I mean, one of the things we know is that they're actually digging in. In a lot of these places, they're not on the offensive, 
but they're also not leaving. So what are they doing? Is they're 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 entrenching their armor to protect it against artillery and ambush. They're not moving. They're just staying there. Ukraine doesn't have the offensive capabilities to to fully take you know push them out, particularly in the east of the country. It's different around Kiev because like I said it's forested. You get you have air cover. You know you have you have cover from aircraft and drones. Out in the east, it's it's desert like, so nobody moves without a drone seeing you move, and so it makes it very very hard to to go on the offensive. So um, it'll be it'll be um, tough for for Ukraine to fully eject Russia without dramatic different kind of arms uh, shipments. So they need they need you know infinitely more air defenses to take down drones and take down, you know, ground control aircraft. They need more artillery. They need more tanks because as obsolete as tanks look right now, and they are the, you know, modern warfare will change because of this. The tank is, is in, in its last legs. You still need armor. You still need the heavy guns to, to charge enemy positions. So Ukraine doesn't, by all indications, have the tools it needs. It has the tools to defend itself, does not have the tools to go on the offensive. And that's a big distinction. So we may just have a bloody stalemate for the next you know, couple months until either Russia's economy fully collapses and the oligarchs and the, the army do something about it, or I don't know, because Ukraine can survive indefinitely now. We know that. They know that. Yeah. So I'm, since you said it, I'm just curious. I'm going to down, go down this hole for a minute. What is going to replace the tank eventually? I mean, I'm not talking about just in this war, but you said... Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I'm curious. so the Marines got rid of their tanks. The Marines have no more tanks. They did, this, they, they did this about five years ago. So old Marine tanks are now sitting at National Guard units. And um, the what's replacing the tank is smaller armored vehicles to, to move infantry and a swarm of drones just literally so you have the the there's there's a competition right now to design the next generation tank after the m1 and the the designs are like wheels they're not even tracked they have wheels right wheeled vehicles big old wheels big ginormous wheels but wheeled vehicles that have their own drone defense systems and have anti-drone machine guns automated machine guns. So you have the drones that see the other drones and the machine guns that take out those drones. And uh, so it's just going to be, I think the modern battlefield is just going to be a whole swarm of drones. That's, I mean, if you're Taiwan, why not, why invest on expensive Navy uh, an aircraft that'll get shot down and sunk within the first hours of a, of an invasion when you can have a million drones just swarm out and take out, a, you know, an invading amphibious assault. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the future. And this is what we're seeing. Even Saudi Arabia is under attack uh, from Yemen, from uh, Yemen's territory, where Iran backed rebels are just sending drones to blow up uh, oil, oil refineries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drones. Wow. And this is these are like janky rebels. We're not they're, <laughs> with nothing. One of the poorest country in the world. Right. These people have nothing. They can somehow cobble together some janky old drones with some explosives and they they strike at Saudi Arabia's number one industry oil. It's, it's warfare is changing. It's going to be different. And, and uh, hopefully it makes it more difficult for, you yeah. know, for, 
that you're not going to overwhelm somebody with your superior mass of tanks if $20,000 drones can take out your $3 million tank. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to work. It's even more. Oh. U.S. is sending uh, suicide drones, suicide drones to Ukraine. These are $20,000 drones that lo- they, they, they loiter over a battlefield, look for a tank, they identify the tank, and then they just attack. So you can just send swarms of these that are just going to be floating over. And when they see a Russian tank, they can then dive down and blow up the tank. They cost $20,000 each. Wow. Why are we spending $5 million on a battle tank that can be taken out by a $20,000 drone? By a drone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, thank you for enlightening us. Also, folks, um, uh, other journalists at Daily Coast are covering this extensively. Name some of those that people can look for on the site. Well, Mark Sumner is, yeah, Mark Sumner is, is, he's, I call him our uh, jack of all trades and master of all. He's a, he's a scientist. He's a pilot. He's a, he's an author. Uh, He's done it all. Incredibly smart. He anchored our COVID, COVID uh, coverage. And uh, it turns out that that he is well-versed on Soviet-era military equipment and hardware. So you can speak intelligently about it and how it's performing in the field and the problems with it. Okay. So, so we'll look for Mark Sumner. Uh, also, uh, Marcos is writing regularly on his blog every day just about, um, about all of this. So, uh, again, folks, this is news you can use, news you probably are not getting uh, elsewhere. Um, for those of you who don't know, I don't know if I shared this with Marcos, my study of Soviet politics, Soviet history began when I was a student at Georgetown University um, with a particular focus at that time in the mid 80s. I was in the African Affairs program at the School of Foreign Service with a particular focus on the role of the Soviet Union uh, played in Africa mm-hmm. uh, and in supporting the the African uh, independence movement, the decolonization movement, and there were, at that time, as you will recall, Marcos, it was a tug of war yep. between America's interests and the Soviets. So, um, you know, communism uh, befriended the revolutionary struggle in Angola and in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. Um, all this went on. So I studied these matters and learned about these matters under none other than my professor at Georgetown at the time, none other than Dr. Madeline Albright. And so may she, may she rest in, in peace. Um, And this was before, this is in 85. So this is before um, Clinton was even thought about and she became Mm -hmm. the uh, secretary of state. Um, and just to show you how some people's educations take them in different directions, my, my education, um, um, rather than steer me in the direction of being in the foreign service, because at that time, Reagan was the president. When I went to the school of foreign service, a lot of people, not just me, um, you know, people were interested in international affairs, but being in on a foreign service trajectory meant um, that you were probably going to be a diplomat, work for the State Department, and then you had to promote the policy uh, of the right, administration right. in power. Yeah, and so well. it ended up that experience ended up radicalizing me because the Reagan administration 
uh, was the major world proponent of constructive engagement in apartheid South Africa. Uh, and so it, 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 I went the opposite direction. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and we shut down Georgetown and got Georgetown to divest from South Africa. That's what my <laughs> classroom, that's what my classroom, and then people were like, we got to get him out of here. This, this wasn't the way this was supposed to uh, <laughs> go. I'm writing an article. Chester, you remember the name Chester Crocker, Marcos? No, no. Reagan's Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. And so at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, administration officials always come to the campus to speak. Yeah. And whenever Chester Crocker would come, we would demonstrate and drown out his speech. <laughs> he couldn't speak on campus. And we would sing the song, Hugh Masekela's great song, Bring Back Nelson Mandela, Bring Him Back Home to So We shut down. We built a shantytown until the school divested. Really kicked off the whole campus divestment movement. I'm writing articles in the newspaper at the time. There was no Daily Coast. Uh, our paper was the Hoya, the Hoya.com. And we were, I was writing articles. The White House called and called the president of the university and said, we need you to get the student newspaper to stop publishing that young man's articles. <laughs> that's that's, that's awesome. the true thing. That's when I... That's, that's when I was put on, that's when I got on the, uh, whatever, I mean, COINTELPRO doesn't exist, but I'm certain that was when, whatever the remnants of COINTELPRO are, that's when I was put on the radar. And my fellow students stood by me. It was First Amendment, they had First Amendment rights. You can't do that. He has rights. So I was wearing them out. And um, so it actually radicalized me. And, and Madeline Albright uh, <laughs> played a role in that. As a matter of fact, I'm telling you how long ago this was, folks. I mentioned Africa and the Soviet Union. In the 1980s, Zimbabwe got its independence in 1981. And uh, Bob Marley went over there and performed. Very famous independence celebration. And Robert Mugabe was a hero. In 1985, he was still a hero. And he was being, um, he had two, two suitors, the United States and the Soviet Union. Who was going to get control of, of Zimbabwe? It was as big a story as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I was in her class and we specifically were studying uh, the Soviet Union versus the United States with regards to Zimbabwe. So that's my, and, and last thing I'll say, you're right. I remember, if those of you who were old enough to remember this, they did have a Politburo and them folk didn't have long shelf lives. Nope. They did have some accountability because it, it was always a big story. Brezhnev is gone and then somebody else would come <clears> and go. <throat> and, and, you know, and, and it was, you know, it, it was, you always knew that a Soviet leader, you know, was not long for this world. Uh, there was a leash. There was, there was yeah, a leash. Yeah, there was. Always, always was. You're right yep. about that. I remember that very well. And, it, and and the anxiety for U.S. foreign policy was, well, is the next one we're going to get uh, be worse or, or better? And that is where the famous statement came from, from the evil Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, when, when the polar bear went to Gorbachev and chose him, we all remember the statement, well, here's someone we can do business with because everybody else was seen mm -hmm. as someone that business could not be done with. And so, yeah. anyway, but that, that's, um, that, 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 that's our experience. So anyway, uh, Madeline Albright, um, uh, rest in peace. That's a, and, that's uh, a, that's an awesome story. <laughs> I'm glad I, I'm glad I got to hear it. I don't know if you've yeah, told yeah. it before, but I'm glad, I'm glad I got to hear it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, folks, uh, uh, follow DailyCoast.com, uh, follow Mark Sumner, follow uh, uh, Marcos. Um, Marcos, as always, thank you, buddy.
Always a pleasure. And uh, I'm on vacation next week. I'll catch you in two weeks. Well, you know what I think I'm gonna do? We're gonna get, we're gonna folks. Let's get Sumner and Marcos. Would your audience like to hear Sumner and Marcos's place next week? Let's see what we can do. We're gonna get something. Oh, and we can definitely some do that. History expertise. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you, Marcos. Right, pleasure. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.